Hi everyone, it's Joakim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I have a chat with Carl Fritjofsson, partner at venture capital firm Creandum. Before his job at Creandum, Carl founded two startups and raised several rounds of funding. After his second company, Carl left to work with the world's most active seed investor 500 startups in San Francisco, coaching and mentoring early-stage companies through an intense four-month accelerator program. In parallel to this, Carl was a part-time venture partner at Creandum, supporting its portfolio in the U.S. market. In 2016, Carl scaled up to a full-time partner role at Creandum, he is now the go-to guy at Grandum in all their gaming-related investments. This podcast is brought to you by Playtest Cloud, who make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient. Get videos of real players playing your game so you can make decisions based on player feedback. I've been using Playtest Cloud for years, and it's always been so revealing in what you can actually find out from real players playing your game or even an early prototype. Playtest Cloud has their own player pool of about 160,000 players, so you can choose exactly the sort of players you'd want to have in your playtest right on their website. They support targeting by player age, gender, and what other games they've been playing. They handle all the logistics behind playtesting, including getting your builds to the players safely. They also have NDAs in place for all the players, and their software deactivates the game automatically after the playtest. So testing in-development games is no problem. And the best thing is that you can get started right away. No SDK or code changes required. Just upload the build file on their website, and you'll be watching videos in no time. Give it a try at playtestcloud.com and mentioned that Elite Game Developers sent you. They're also going to be at Gamescom in August. If you're going, give them a shout. Hi, Carl. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, glad to be here. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Spending some time at the summer house, like regular Finnish people do in the summer, that they just run away from the city. That's the way to do it. I'm jealous. I'm still in the midst of San Francisco urban jungle here. It's not the worst place, maybe. <laughs> so. No, no, I enjoy it. It's good. Hey, let's kick off with the simple question of how did you get into the interesting world of venture capital? I mean, the short story to that is that I've been doing startups for quite some time, both bootstrapped, uh, kind of slow moving, linear growth, and then venture funded. And my most recent startup was a company called Rap that Creandum seed funded. And then that company eventually brought me into the US. I'm from Sweden originally. So we founded the company there and I moved over to the US. And then as I kind of transitioned out of that company, I started to think what was next for me, evaluating new entrepreneurial journeys, as well as looking into the investment path. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be in a good relation with Creandum, and, and that kind of led me into that path. And, and, and I now manage our San Francisco office as of a few years back and feel this is the most privileged job in the world. So I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. What kind of like drives you to venture capital? What are the most interesting things as a you know person who wants to see things and things like that? How would you explain that? 
Yeah, I mean, this is part of the privilege that I feel, right? I mean, if, if you have a curious mind, if you're interested in, to learn about new things, there is no better place to be than, than working in venture. Every day I meet with amazing people who clearly have great aspirations and ambitions in life, and they share their dreams with me, and I get to ask them questions, and they are transparent and candid about explaining what they're doing and working on and the challenges ahead. So it's one of the few professions in the world where you get paid for learning. And that is something that I really, really appreciate. And so I love it from that perspective. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Can you introduce Creandum for the listeners? Sure. So Creandum is an early stage venture fund that originates from Sweden. It's been around since 2003. And the firm has evolved since then. We started focusing purely on the Nordic ecosystem, trying to find global potential winners out of that ecosystem, um, software technology companies. And now Creanum invests all across Europe and even selectively outside of Europe uh, in companies that really kind of share the European roots of us. And uh, the fund focuses on seed and Series A investments, meaning early stage. And in those companies, we take a fairly active role in working with those companies and serving on the boards and really trying to be the most trusted partner in the journey ahead for the founders. And we think of Creandum as very founder-friendly, founder-centric, long-term patient investor who really, really try to serve the founders in the utmost possible way. We see ourselves as service providers to the entrepreneurial ecosystems and, and founders most prominently. And then in terms of some of the companies that Creandum has been fortunate enough to be part of, I think Spotify is the, the biggest most well-known company where Creandum participated in the first institutional round. Same with iZettle and Klarna, two payments companies out of the Nordics. And then when it comes to gaming specifically, Creandum started looking into gaming around 2011-12 timeframe and, and has since been a fairly active investor within that vertical. We like to think that we are one of the few institutional funds out there that understands gaming and still likes to pursue gaming opportunities. And the biggest success we've had within that vertical has been small giant games out of Helsinki, who I'm sure you know that everyone around that company. And it's been a true honor to see how amazing they've built that and the outcome that so fortunately deserved. Yeah, they're super great. The story just continues now under Zynga. So it's... Yeah, pretty... yeah. It's not over yet, right? That's what's yeah. even more impressive. So yeah, I want to congratulate you and as well for the new fund that you just recently announced. That's really... Huge, big news for for founders yeah. and everybody. <laughs> We're super happy that the investors of Creandum continue to believe in what the fund has been doing for the past couple of years. So the most recent fund is $300 million roughly. And it's a fund that will continue to invest in, in the early stages of technology companies all across Europe, really. And most of this activity is sparked from our three offices that we have today in Stockholm, Berlin, and then also in San Francisco. And even though we focus on Europe, most of the companies that we are working with, we think of them as going after global opportunities, which is why we have this bridge over to the U.S. as part of our kind of service offering to the founders that we work with. Yeah. You guys had really like beautiful exits with Spotify and the Small Giant Games recently. Has your operations changed after this success? The fund size has increased a little bit since then, a little bit based on the learnings that we've seen that the big winners within venture are companies that you really want to double down on and, and invest more in. So hence, Creandum has chosen to increase the fund size a little bit to support that. So that's one part of the change. I think 
you know, Creanim invested in Spotify in 2008. And at that point of time, there was only one office in Stockholm and the fund was purely focused on the Nordic region. So we clearly graduated quite a way beyond that if you compare it to where we are today in terms of the size of the team uh, working at Creanim Advisors and, and the three offices that we have. But other than that, we like to think that Creandum has always been focused on the early stages of technology innovation, and that's what we'll continue to do. So we don't want to deviate too much away from that. Sounds good. Hey, let's go into the investment area of where you do like your day-to-day. When you look at the gaming landscape, how do you evaluate what's going on in the market? Yeah, I mean, I think we like the gaming space still today. And we continue to be excited about it. Maybe today more than a couple of years ago. I mean, we've seen the large gaming companies continue to consolidate the market and become even more powerful, right? And it's actually been a pretty good and frothy environment for the early stage companies that starts gaining real success. Let's say like the small giant one that then becomes a real target for these acquiring bigger gaming giants. And that will continue, right? That part of this ecosystem will continue. But what I think is really fascinating at this point of time is that we're also seeing, to some extent, a real platform shift. So the mobile ecosystem really swept the gaming industry under its feet here about 10 years ago or so. Now we're seeing the real bets on streaming as well as subscription models. And uh, all major platforms are obviously launching their own versions of this. And who knows which one of these will become the dominant ones in the industry. But what has been the case, if you look at history and what will be rewritten again in this transition that we're seeing now, is that a change in platforms like this opens up for so much opportunities for the companies that are able to seize that before others. So right now, we think that with relatively much less resources, you will still be able to gain significant traction in these platforms if you see and understand those opportunities when they arise. And who knows what those will be, right? We have some thoughts and and ideas and hopes, but ultimately it will be the best game studios that will seize those and really utilize that. So we think that right now it's actually a better time than ever to continue to double down and go deep in gaming. Mm. Yeah, I like that approach for sure. (laughs) I'm also doubling down on a lot of games companies. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming. Yeah, awesome. When a founder is kind of like at the stage that, you know, they might be hitting lightning in a bottle, (laughs) there's something good happening there. How should they approach financing round for their company? Yeah. So from our perspective, we look at gaming companies at the early stage, and we generally try to separate between two different phases of when Creanum potentially can get involved. One is at the very, very early stage. You know, sometimes this is labeled as kind of the pre-seed stage. This is when it is an experienced team that comes together and have articulated a nice and, and well-thought idea and an opportunity that, that they're pursuing. And the bet from an investor's perspective is really on that team and the depth of experience that they have. And then the second component on when Creandum likes to get involved is more closer to when you're ready to start scaling a specific game. So this generally tends to mean that the game is in soft launch and there's some decent retention and engagement metrics that you can evaluate this upon. And the funds is more used to start scaling UA and things like that. So at Creanum, we look at both of these two phases. I think the most important thing of what a founder should think about when it comes to raising capital from someone like us is that we see this as you know, a true marathon. We will be in business for many years with the companies that 
Trianum associates itself with. So this is not a relationship that you really want to rush into. You really want to build this over time and get to know us and we get to know you over time. So ultimately, this means that we love to get to know you when you're not raising capital, right? That's the point of time when we like to start, get to know you and understand what you are pursuing and the opportunity that lies ahead of you. And the way to get to us is that, you know, our door is wide open. It's very easy to ping any one of us. But clearly, if you get an introduction from a referral who is someone in our trusted network, we will pay much closer attention to you as a business. So the best tactic in order to get our attention is to really leverage some of the people within the industry. And luckily, within gaming, there's quite a few people that know us out there. So it should be fairly easy to get to us through some of them. And then start building a relationship where you're helping us understand where you want to go and how you're progressing towards that trajectory. So the more you can articulate that big vision and the more you can then show proof points that you're meeting the targets towards that vision, the more excited we become. And part of this sometimes comes into hard metrics, you know, D1, D3, D7, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes this is a very qualitative conversation around the philosophies that you have in terms of how you build your company. When you're looking at the whole package and you break it down to the team and to the product and to the market that the team is in, what is the approach there? Is it more about the numbers that if you have the numbers that you're evaluating the deal based on the numbers, what are the dynamics there? Yeah. So, you know, there's this saying, right? Don't ruin a good story with data. And if you have data, right? If you have engagement metrics, even if you're the most experienced team in the world that has this massive idea, but then your D3 and D7 look horrible, that is a tough sell. So once you're in soft launch and you actually have data, then that becomes part of the core story that you need to be able to tell. And it doesn't mean that the absolute numbers need to meet certain specific absolute thresholds. It's much more around than how you as a team are working in order to resolve some of these metrics and showing the trend lines of how those change over time. But if we meet with you at that stage when you have data around one or a couple of titles that are in soft launch, let's say, then a big part of our evaluation will be looking at those metrics and understanding that. But in the first instance, you know, pre any type of soft launch, then everything becomes down to a combination of actually tangible experience, relevant experience as a team. I mean, clearly we want to back people that aren't gaming tourists and people that have been in this industry for a while and knows the space. But we also really like to back teams that have worked together, that have proven that they've gone through the creative process of game creation and shipping something that actually worked and was relatively appreciated by the industry. So we really like to see teams that not only do each one of them individually have extensive background and experience, but they also have proof points as a team in order to have shipped something in the past. Maybe that was at another studio than where they are right now, or maybe it was in the existing company, but they're now kind of revamping a new title or something like that. But in addition to just looking at tangible experiences from a team, then what we also really like to hear are some relatively thoughtful answers to why the world needs yet this game studio, right? And it's the ultimate question when it comes to game development today, right? You know, whatever the data says, is it 500 or 1,000 new games launched every day in the app stores? Whatever the number is, it's incredibly competitive out there, right? And the bar of entry is low. So we'd really like teams that have put some deep thinking into the specific opportunity that they're going after. 
Like why does the world need this specific game and what is unique characteristics of that game and how do they think that they can scale this game in something that is to us at least feels like a slightly differentiated approach and makes them stand out. That's awesome feedback for sure for the founders. I've been thinking about this product market fit for a game and a games company because usually product market fit means that you're uncontrollably growing, getting more users than you can handle. People just want your product. How do you see product market fit when you're evaluating deals? Yeah, so that's a good question because I think to some extent we don't think about product market fit when it comes to gaming because third of the world's population is categorized as gamers today and everybody really has that kind of need of what games can fulfill for you. So from a macro perspective, we know that games is incredibly valuable and powerful and the market is demanding these products out there, right? But then, you know, an, a specific individual game will prove its product market fit with retention and monetization metrics. I think that's ultimately what it comes down to, right? Mm. And, you know, the D1, D3, D7, D30, all the, these regular KPIs are things that we that we look heavily into and trying to understand. And for us, our experience is that long-term retention is really what matters the most. How steep the cohort drops from D1 and onwards, that is the biggest determining factor for us, how excited we are around a specific game. We really try to look deep into those metrics and understand that and also trying to like stress test because a lot of times if we're looking at soft launch data, you know, a lot of times it may come from some secondary markets in the world and really want to stress test the assumptions, how that will work in maybe more mass markets and more competitive markets than where they are and things like that. So there's a lot of layers to uncover once you see that first data point, right? But yeah, I think that ultimately is the definition of product market fit for us in terms of is your retention cohort dropping at not too dramatic rate and then tying into monetization opportunities down the line there. I think right now, you know, especially in mobile, even free to play is becoming more and more sophisticated in PC and things like that. But there are certain best practices, monetization mechanisms that you can use if you have the right retention. So we look more towards retention than monetization when we evaluate product market fit. If we really have the retention, then we feel fairly certain that we'll be able to crack monetization on top of that. So we're willing to take more of a risk there when we're kind of evaluating a company. Sounds good. Yeah, totally agree on that retention angle first. And then when you're evaluating the deal and you come up with the decision, let's say it's a no for now for the founder. How do you give feedback to the founder and how do you discuss the decision-making process internally to kind of like give yourself the feedback of how we made the deal or how we didn't proceed? It's a pretty difficult one, to be honest, because there's so many things that feed into uh, that decision, right? And we really want to be constructive in our feedback that we provide to the founders. And, you know, one of our internal OKRs, if you may, is that every founder interaction that happens between Creandum and the ecosystem should be of value to those founders, right? They should never walk away from having spent 30 minutes, 60 minutes with us and not having gained anything from that. So it's important for us to give something, but it's also important. We also think of this as we don't want to force ourselves into giving that this one question is the one. And if you crack that, everything will be great, right? Because a lot of the times 
these things are interconnected with it one and another, and it's difficult to choose which one should you actually articulate and speak with the founders around. So with that having been said, we still try, right? We still try to give constructive feedback on if a decision is no and, and what we would love to have seen instead in order for us to get closer to a yes decision. But what's important to know, I think, for founders is also that venture funds, we also operate with a scarcity of resources and a time constraint. So I may meet you today and you present me with your company and it's actually phenomenal. But the challenge is that I met with another company the week before that was also phenomenal. And I'm already deep down into that due diligence. And maybe there's not enough bandwidth for me to process these two companies in parallel. Right? So like timing matters quite a bit when it comes to venture investment. It's very difficult for founders to understand and, and control kind of the bandwidth of a specific fund when you're speaking to them, right? But that means that if you find the venture investors at a time when their workload is significantly less, you will have the ability to educate them much more around your process. They will be able to dig deeper into your numbers and, and spend significantly more time than if they're working on multiple things in parallel. So sometimes, you know, a decision is a no, but it's also because it was a priority among other deals that we're pursuing. So it's just the kind of dynamics that feeds into the relationship that founders have with VCs that is difficult to manage, but something you should be cautious of. Yeah. And then if you're kind of like slowly developing the relationship, you can build up kind of like the data that you have on the case. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're not rushing the process, then you have much more ability to manage the time allocation of the venture fund that you're getting to know, right? So if I'm forced to consume a deep spreadsheet with a million different KPIs and I have to give you a decision tomorrow, I only have that many hours, right? And it will be challenging for me. Whereas if you gave me nuggets of all that data traction during the past year, I already know so much about the business. And when we start talking about the specific round now happening, I already have the details and the kind of the backstory that I need. So that helps a lot. I've put together a list of the top 10 questions that investors have asked me when I've been pitching my previous games companies to them. Check out the list at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash ask. That's EliteGameDevelopers.com slash ask. A-S-K. Yeah. You're operating in the Bay Area. and. There aren't that many gaming investors in the Bay Area, but there is a lot of investors who operate in like a lot of verticals going into yep. direct to consumer, SaaS, enterprise, electric scooters. But yeah. then if it's gaming, they're very hesitant on approaching gaming. Why do you think this is happening? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it's because gaming to a large extent is a hit driven business right and if you don't understand gaming then it is a very nervous bet to place that this specific studio that i'm betting on that i really really don't understand what they're doing that will that be the one that breaks out and then rather have maybe a portfolio approach where you do many of these bets but then you need to devote significant amount of resources to it and that could be tough for some funds but I think one of the kind of untold secrets of venture that I'm revealing here is that many of the metrics-driven analysis that is used, for example, in software as a service, which is a huge category in itself that 
more or less every venture investor is pursuing unless you're like consumer focused only. And we do a lot in SaaS, right? And when it comes to evaluating SaaS companies out there, there is this playbook amongst venture investors that is fairly straightforward in terms of which metrics do you look at and what is the benchmark of good versus great and things like that. And I think that a lot of that playbook can actually be applied into gaming. You change some of the numbers a little bit and you change the benchmark threshold a little bit, but it's fundamentally a very similar way of evaluating companies if you're at that soft launch stage, at least, where you have some data, right? And what's interesting with gaming is that the cycles are dramatically shorter than what you have in SaaS. So you're actually able to understand the health of the business much sooner than you are with a software as a service company. So I think if more VCs understood this, I think more people would pay attention to gaming. But the third component of why more VCs aren't looking at into gaming is also this factor that once you break out, you break out and you don't really need venture funds anymore. If you enter that escape velocity with a specific game and the monetization engine works for that, then you almost become a printing press of money and the venture fund plays a much less important role in that. So this means that if you are to be a gaming investor, you have to be early. And Mm -hmm. every VC fund doesn't want to be that early. So that feeds into the reasons why as well. Yeah, makes sense. Thinking about the Bay Area and all the companies there that you're seeing constantly, what should the European games companies learn from the Silicon Valley startup? You know, it's an interesting question because me being kind of a European VC, but living in the Bay Area, I constantly get questions around what should Europe do better and things like that. But when it comes to gaming, it's not that I really necessarily believe that the Bay Area is at the forefront of things here. I mean, what the Bay Area has going for itself, why it still plays an important role when it comes to gaming, is that the big platforms are out there that you have dependencies on, right? So Google and Apple and Amazon and things like that. That means that Silicon Valley plays a significant role here. But when it comes to like innovative ways of building game studios and the early stages of that innovation, I feel that in Europe in particular, the Nordics is, is you know really above its weight class. And one of the areas that Silicon Valley is rather asking me, what can we learn in Silicon Valley from what's happening in the Nordics? So I don't necessarily think that there is that much over here that we really need to see more of in the Nordics. Yeah. Can always take more risks, maybe. (laughs) That is true. And there's always this component of like in the Nordics that we should be better at being ambitious and selling the story and the vision a little more and that kind of stuff. But, you know, when it comes to gaming, I think it's not that part of entrepreneurship of like being really visionary and things like that. It's important, but it's not as critical as it is in some other categories because here it's much more around like we're launching some kind of a game generally, right? And we know that the world needs games. Mm -hmm. So like that equation is already there. And then it's just like, how do we make as successful of a game as possible within there? Whereas in some other industry, it's much more about, you know, disrupting an industry from upside down and getting rid of taxes and instead allowing private individuals to drive people around like a la Uber. You know, it's much more of a, a bigger industry shift than what we typically see in gaming. I would love to know if I saw more gaming entrepreneurs that came to me and said, hey, we're ripping out everything that you think of in the gaming industry and we're changing that dramatically. But generally, when we think of gaming, at least at Kriana, we think of various game studios and content players. Yeah. So thinking about like going into the games market and looking at the companies that are out there, there's not that many 
big companies being built at the moment. So it's mostly like small to medium where, yeah. you know, you have a even a hit game, you still don't break out that easily. How do you see kind of like that venture helping that area more? That is one of the interesting dynamics of the gaming industry right now, right? That you have Tencent and Microsoft and Blizzard and some of these people that they make sure that you can't get too big because mm-hmm. then they then they swallow you to some extent. We like to think that VC funding allows you the additional firepower and ammunition to scale your company when you know maybe customers and the general stakeholders of an industry doesn't allow you to do. So this becomes kind of the extra fuel that you need in order to scale. And I think that holds for gaming companies as well. Right now, the saturation that we've seen, especially in mobile platforms right now, and how dominant the big players have become here, I think the realistic bet here as an early stage investor is that the next Tencent, let's say, it will not be built on the App Store ecosystem. It will be built through other means. So if you are a game studio and you're launching another free-to-play gaming company, then if your ambition is to disrupt Tencent, if that's the end goal, to be something of that magnitude, then you have to kind of rewrite the rules and the playbook and the platform significantly. But what's great about this kind of consolidation and these large gaming companies that have become giants in this industry, what's great about the dynamics that exist there is that they make big bets, right? You know, acquiring King.com, that isn't just a small company being acquired, right? That's like a big, big transaction in the world of not only gaming, but in, in any, any definition by means. So I think that's prosperous as well, where you, know, you have a lot of other industries that we look at as well, where the acquisitions doesn't happen to the same extent, especially not at those levels, right? So when it comes to gaming, you have acquisitions happening at the very smaller end of a couple of million and then up to several billion. Mm-hmm. So the range is actually fairly big. And I think that, that is ultimately a pretty positive thing for you, if you're a founder in this industry, to have the, that optionality. Mm. Yeah, actually where you take your company, there is definitely that. There is so many options out there. Yeah. When you're working with your portfolio, how do you usually go about helping the founders build their companies? Yeah. So like I said earlier here, we like to think of Creanum as a value-added investor, and we like to think of ourselves as service providers to the founders. So we really want to help them build this business. And part of what we do is you know, we have our own experiences from operating various companies in the past, and then we have a lot of data points from just being exposed to a lot of companies. And we try to extract those learnings as much as we can and help founders and coach them on this journey. In addition to that, we have a portfolio of like specialized service providers within certain verticals and domains, UA being one of them, analytics being another one. And these are people that have been part of big successes related to these, these fields. So we bring them in on a needy basis to help and work with the portfolio companies on a specific topic and a question that they have. And then thirdly, which is maybe the most important thing that we have, is what we call the power of the portfolio. And that is really how we make sure that our founders interact with each other and share learnings and issues with one another. And that kind of peer community that we're building, we've found that to be incredibly helpful, scalable, and appreciated. So that's something we really encourage and wanted to do more of as part of that. But what's also really important to state here is that 
the biggest thing that we do as a venture capitalist is evaluating teams and finding founders that are incredibly capable at building their businesses. So we definitely want to work with them and want to support them in this journey and want to help with them with any shape or form that we can. But ultimately, the success of the portfolio companies that Creanum is associated with, that is determinable on the founders' capabilities and their agility to uh, learn in the environment that they operate with and grow and scale with the company. And, you know, there's ways that we can coach and facilitate that for them as well. But I really believe firmly that founders build their businesses, not VCs. And I don't want to overmarket the capacity that venture funds will be able to kind of truly change a failing business into becoming something incredibly successful. If that happens, and it does happen, then it's because the founders are incredibly amazing. And, mm-hmm. and maybe the VCs were a little nudge in the right direction here and there. But ultimately, the success of our portfolio companies is the founders' success. Yeah. If things aren't going well with the company, do you have specific advice for the founders at those stages? How do you support them at the rough moments? Yeah. So the good thing for us in the way of how we work with our portfolio companies is that we have a really close relationship with them. And bad news does generally not happen at a flash of an instant, but they are something that evolves over time, right? And we're part of that evolution happening. So we're constantly working with the founders in order to course correct and support them in in that journey. I think if you were to speak to founders that have worked with Creanum in the past, I really believe that the consistent story that you'll hear is that we are super founder supportive, even in rough times, right? And we continue to try to serve the founders, even in the most difficult situation, to help them make the best out of things. So it's not that we start seeing things go sideways or south, that we eject ourselves out of the business, but we actually try to really work with you through that part of the journey as well. And then it comes down to like a frank and open conversation with the founders of what the options are that we have, right? Maybe it is a pivot, meaning changing the business on a fairly dramatic or radical way, or maybe it is pursuing M&A opportunities, or maybe it is bridge financing it and raise more money and double down on what you're doing, or maybe it is closing down shop, right? And it's obviously one of the most difficult parts of our job when we experience those things. But it's also the brutal reality of early stage venture is that a lot of companies, they don't succeed. We like to back founders that are really bold, who really pursue big opportunities and big ideas. And by doing so, that means it sometimes doesn't work, right? There is high risk involved in that. Otherwise, more people would do it. So we definitely know that upfront. And we don't hold that against our founders. If they failed a business that we backed them on, and if they, did a, if they had a real shot at it, they really tried and executed the plan that we jointly agreed upon, then we think as highly of those founders as anyone else that we've ever worked with. And we know that the stakes are high. And we also know that failing a business, it hurts way more for the founders than it does for us. I mean, that's generally the only thing that they're doing. And they've bet their entire life and career on it, whereas we have more of a portfolio approach. So we also have to sympathize with that as much as we can. Generally, we think of ourselves as founder-friendly and long-term and patient. And we know that very few companies go into the stratosphere and succeed day one. Most of them stumble and fall on the way over there. And uh, we have to be patient enough to see that through. I mean, Small Giant isn't a great example of that, right? Who had a couple of so-so games initially, and then eventually Empires of Puzzles broke out. That was phenomenal. So that's not a rare coincidence. I mean, that happens very often. Yeah. 
it's not something that you immediately have, you know, the hit game, and it requires several tries, even maybe another company, and guys are backing the next company as well, if it makes yeah. right? Yeah. And actually, you know, one of my partners, Johan, he backed Temu in his uh, previous company, Habo. There was a relationship that extended many years if we extrapolated from when we actually started working with Small Giant. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's go to the final questions. And the first sure. one is your favorite book and why? <laughs> it's a bit challenging to name that one book, right? I mean, it's one of these binary questions that shouldn't be binary. So yeah. I don't want to bet my entire <laughs> literature career on one book. But I think one of the most interesting ones that I recently read is Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, which is a book that I think a lot of people have consumed by now. But it's, you know, it's really a story about the creation of the world's most powerful piece of technology a technology that can evaporate humanity. And it's a story about true bleeding edge innovation and a fight against time and mobilizing armies of people towards this common North Star. So there's a lot of learnings there when it comes to entrepreneurship, I think. And it's a great read of just pure history. There's also a story that, I don't know if this is rewriting the history, but at least when you read that book, it becomes rewarding to see that the kind of sharpest brains of that time were the true heroes of that time the best physicists of the world, they were the ones that got the most appreciation in society during this time. And I know very few physicists today that are, you know, have mass market appeal, so to speak, and are educating the world about their research. But it's a good book. Mm. Is it the best? I don't know. But at least it's up there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. Do you have like a story or experience that shaped you in the way that you approach your work? I have one that is more or less from the first job that I ever had that I think it stuck with me. And especially throughout my entrepreneurial years, I worked as a bellboy or piccolo at a hotel outside of Uppsala, where I grew up in Sweden, carrying bags, right? And I remember when I came for the interview, if it even was an interview, but at least I met someone before I got the job, I remember. And we sat in the hotel restaurant. And, you know, the hotel restaurant, it was clean and looked nice and all that stuff. And we talked about the gig and that kind of stuff. And then I came for my first day of job and I was escorted behind the reception into kind of the back office environment of this hotel. And at that time, you know, the world hadn't gone as digital as it has today. So there was like papers lying everywhere. It was like a mess. It looked like someone dropped a bomb in there. Like it was chaos and things flipped over and old coffee cups standing everywhere and that kind of stuff. And it was such a difference from this polished outside exterior that I had seen at the hotel in the reception and the restaurant. And then once I came inside of this company, I realized that a lot of things were literally upside down and was a mess. And this whole thing of like the outside perception of the world, of every company that I ever been associated with, the outside perception of a company is always different from the inside. And there's always duct tape around various edges within an organization and there's always some leakage here and there that people are trying to block. And there's fires that needs to be extinct. And this goes for every company ever, both large and small. And that has served as kind of a comforting fact for me in my career that, you know, when I started my own first businesses and we were starting selling this, the first business was an ad network and we were selling these advertising campaigns. And But I knew that on the inside, we were like just putting this shit together as rough as we could. But at least knowing that that was the case also with this hotel that to me at that time represented like a massive business, right? A big corporate 
So I think that uh, the difference between outside and internal perspective is something that I carry with me still today. And when the companies that we work with now at, at Creando, when they have internal issues, I can find some serenity in my own in my own learnings from that. That uh, it's not something unique to that company, but everyone has it. Yeah, that's a good one. Thanks a lot, Carl, for coming on to the show. And uh, final question: Where can people get in contact with you? What's the best way to reach out? I am all over the internet, so like it's really easy to get to me. Pick your social platform or uh, email or anything like that. I'm an open book. Yeah, good stuff. Hey, thanks a lot, Carl. Have a good day there in the Bay Area. Amazing. Thank you, Joachim. Enjoy the summer house. Thank you. <laughs> See you. Bye bye. Thanks again to Carl for coming on board and sharing his knowledge. As a reminder check out the list I put together on the top 10 questions that investors have asked me when I've been pitching my games companies to them. Check out the list at elitegamedevelopers.com ask. Thank you guys. Talk to you soon again.